Welcome to the Lit Matters Podcast, a show whose journey is to discover the books that matter, the stories that we should all be reading. I'm your host, Chris Evans, and I've devoted decades in education examining this very topic. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest, fellow teachers, librarians, writers, and lovers of books from all walks of life who will advocate for a single transformative book, one that we should all be reading. Through this podcast, I hope to build a collective bookshelf of amazing stories, lit that matters. Welcome to episode five of the Lit Matters podcast. I have always loved the 1987 REM song, It's the End of the World as We Know It. I know it's been played ad nauseum, but I still crank up the volume every time I hear it. Maybe it's the fact that when the song first came out, I had a horrible mullet. Maybe it's Michael Stipe's, you know, gloomy, but really fun sort of rapid fire lyrics. Maybe it's the boppy nature of of the music. I don't know. But every time that song comes on, even though I've heard it a billion times, I still scream out, I feel fine. So guys, today for episode five, I do feel fine. And we are turning to Octavia Butler's dystopian masterpiece, Parable of the Sower. And we are joined by Flavia Ruzzi, a professor of English at Orange Coast College. And she's one of my favorite colleagues to chat about books and life and everything else with. So Flavia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's such a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. Well, I certainly appreciate it. Uh, you gave me a book here that I really enjoyed and, and loved, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. So let's begin this. I, I ask of all of my guests this first question, which is, what is your origin story, your journey to becoming a, a lifelong reader? Um, that's such a, such a good question. And um, I'm sure that every reader has a different origin story, right? Um, and often they're unlikely, um, but also at the same time, somehow inevitable. Um, and I think mine sort of falls along those lines. I, it was inevitable that I would eventually become a reader because my parents were readers. So um, I grew up in Albania, um, which at the time was very much a developing country and I think still is to a great degree. Um, and we didn't have much, but whatever we had seemed to be sort of funneled in terms of financial um, funding seemed to be funneled very intentionally towards reading material. So this paired with the lack of supervision when I was a child, right, led to this kind of haphazard stumbling into a variety of reading materials. So um, when I was a child, right, and I was home and I had my pick of all of these books in my parents' library, we must have had maybe, I would say about 500 to 600 books in a one bedroom apartment. So I would stumble into books based on essentially the looks of the cover. Um, So I found myself at the age of uh, probably nine or 10 reading what most people would likely deem inappropriate books uh, for someone of that age. Um, I would read Aeschylus and and Euripides and Sophocles because the covers had those really pretty, um, that visual iconography from uh, mosaics, right? Like ancient Greek mosaics and and drawings. So I, I would read um, those books, and then eventually I would I would graduate towards things that were more complicated, like Kafka's Metamorphoses, which I think I read when I was about eleven years old, and could not make sense of it at all um, until I was at least in high school. Um, and then beyond that, because Albania had been in the past um, a Soviet satellite um, in Eastern Europe, uh, there were a lot of Russian books lying about. So uh, sort of Russian literature was part of of my my, um, unintentional self-education. So I grew up reading War and Peace. I was a huge fan of War and Peace. That's still one of my favorite books. One of the first books that made me cry and that made me um, really um, identify for the first time ever with characters that sort of became my my first friends. Um, And then that was it. I mean, it took off after that. And then I would just read whatever I could get my hands on. Do you still cry when you read it? Um, it's been a while since I've read War and Peace, <laughs> but um, I am still very much in love with Prince Andre, and I think I always will be. He was one of my okay. very, very first crushes. So Flavia, I know that you've had a chance to, to see some of her original manuscripts uh, with this text, uh, Parable of the Sower. What was it like uh, having those in your hands uh, to, to see how this, this sort of process started? 
Um, so this was a very unusual experience for me because my archival work generally involves um, 18th century materials. Uh, that's where my original specialty is in. Um, so when I looked at Butler's manuscripts at the Huntington Library in Pasadena, um, I was actually taking a break from looking at some 18th century epistolary records, some letters um, from uh, uh, Elizabeth Montague. I was writing one of the chapters of my dissertation on her. But at the same time, I was reading Parable of the Sower and then some other books by Butler, and I developed this interest in Butler. Um, and I was lucky, of course, that I was already working at the Huntington Library in Pasadena, where Butler lived, um, and which is part of the reason that the library acquired um, the entire Butler collection, which is a very appropriate thing for them to do. It makes sense that um, all of her manuscripts, all of the, the Butler archive should be in fact in Pasadena. Um, so I had a chance to look at them. And of course, I'd been looking at these materials from the 18th century that were um, very, very different, right? But in some ways also similar. They were different in the sense that um, the focus on decorum and propriety in the 18th century, especially for the sort of like elevated echelons of society that I was um, discussing in my chapter, um, they, they were formatted very differently. And, and the, uh, there was a sense of, um, of what was appropriate and inappropriate, both in terms of the form and the content of the manuscript. With Butler, however, it was like, it was just full of surprises. Like I, did not, I didn't know what I expected from her, but I did not expect what I saw. Um, there were a lot of bits and pieces of paper where she had written ideas that she had about her books, where she um, would work on character development. So you, you'd have like a piece of paper with uh, Lauren Alamina's name on it, um, written in marker, in bright red marker, um, and then different colored ink, right, throughout it, sort of a constellation of, of material surrounding the notes where she would discuss like potential character features or uh, connections to the plot. Um, it was brainstorming, essentially. There was so much brainstorming. Um, and then simultaneously, um, you'd encounter uh, very, very different material. You'd encounter cutouts from magazines and newspapers, a lot of material about climate change um, that she had saved, that she was reading, that she was doing research on. Um, clearly to, to eventually write, um, embed all of that into, into the book, Parable of the Sower. So a great variety um, in her manuscript that I, I wasn't expecting, um, largely again, because I was looking at very different material, but at the same time, um, because manuscripts often look very different um, from that, from this sort of like free flowing um, constellation of, of varied material kind of cobbled together. And you could really see like how she worked um, a lot of it seemed to be um, almost spontaneous, um, but clearly also cumulative, right? Like these characters had come to life gradually, but then were these sort of like strokes of genius. And then you could also see what made it into the book and what didn't, which is always fun, right? What could have been. Uh, so some, some plot points that clearly uh, were abandoned, um, that clearly weren't included in the book. Um, and other plot points that became crucial, that evolved, that developed, that took over. So that was that sort of like organic fluid process of writing was just readily available. And it was such a, such a fun fan experience for me um, to have access to it, such a privilege. Yeah, and I wonder if some of that will change now too. I know, you know, both of us have recognized sort of the digitization of all the manuscripts now. So it may get harder to see those originals. And I, like you, have those sort of, you know, fanboy moments of, oh my goodness, I'm holding the Winnie the Pooh diary in my hand that, you know, I'm freaking out, right? Is this your, is this your biggest sort of fangirl moment in terms of holding a manuscript, an original with the author's notes and writing on it? Or uh, do you have anything to top that as well, too? I mean, this is this for, for those of us who love books, when you have the author's own handwriting in words, it, it's thrilling, right? It's like holding lightning in your hand almost. Oh, that is uh, that is a hard question. Um, I was lucky that in my studies, I did get to perform a lot of archival research. So there have been, for me, surprisingly, a good number of these kinds of moments. But um, I'm trying to remember what year it was. I think maybe it was 
2016 when 2015 or 2016 when I had a chance to um, go to uh, Chatsworth, which is the current re uh, current residence of um, the Duke of Devonshire, and I was writing about uh, Georgiana Cavendish, um, the Duchess of Devonshire. Um, most people might might know her because she was played by Kira Knightley um, in that period piece, The Duchess. Um, so I I got a chance to look at her letters. I had. Uh, I'd been reading biographies and I'd been reading some collections, right, of, of her letters, but uh, she's not exactly a, a sort of heavy hitter in literature. Uh, she's more famous for other things than her writings. So I didn't have a chance to look at, uh, to have a complete picture of her as a person and her writing. And the first day that I went to, to Chatsworth, I was able to access uh, the archives and you know, I just, I was holding in my hand letters that Georgiana Cavendish had written, right, to her friends, um, to her parents, to other members of her family. And, and it was so exciting. She suddenly became real. She was no longer this sort of like fictional heroine in an 18th century period piece. Um, she was a real person, um, a real person who lived in this home, right, who had rooms in this home, who occupied them, who walked the hallways that I was walking. Um, that you also can walk for, you know, 25 pounds um, entrance fee now. Uh, so she was, she became a, a human being, right? Rather than this sort of like distant figure that we retrospectively romanticize. So she, she became a woman who had multiple miscarriages. She became a woman who had a hard time getting pregnant. And I mean, you could see all of that in the letters. She had written them. She had written about her experiences, her pain and, and her love and joy. Um, and that was that was really exciting. So, Flavia, can you tell us a little bit about Octavia Butler? Who was she? What was going on when she wrote this novel? So, Parable of the Sower was published in 1993. And it was published after some pretty big political turmoil and unrest um, in the United States, and specifically in, in um, California as well. But some of the issues that it picks up on clearly are grounded in um, a very vivid and uh, contemporary context that has only sort of grown and developed since then um, in ways that Butler both foresaw and did not foresee. Um, so for example, the issue of climate change, which seems sort of premature for 1993, um, because it seems like we're talking about it constantly now, um, but it's 2021, right? And we've been taught to talk about it. We've been taught to care about it. There's been, uh, there have been countless documentaries about it. Um, and climate change is now sort of a household phrase, right? Everyone recognizes it. Everyone has some sense of what it entails, um, even though there are still sort of like fringe conversations and debates about whether it's happening or not. Uh, but in 1993, it seems like it was, it was early right, to have this kind of um, very immediate, urgent, and, and grave conversation about climate change in the way that uh, Parable of the Sower um, has that conversation. So in 1988, the IPCC was formed, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So already pretty early on, um, there was knowledge being churned out. There was knowledge being accumulated, um, analyses being uh, published and made available to the general public. Um, although the issue was not as recognizable as of course it is now. So Butler was very much attuned to this. She did her research. She, she kept up with it. She knew that uh, climate change was only going to get worse based on the predictions and the models that the IPCC was putting out. Um, and uh, you could see this from her manuscripts, right? You could see the research that she had done. Um, you could see the rigorous work that went into um, setting the context for the novel. And of course, at the same time, this book is very good on race. It takes up the issue of race, of racism in the United States. And in 1991, you had the Rodney King incident of police brutality. And um, in 1992, you had the LA riots. So of course in this book, um, very relevantly so, uh, you have a kind of dramatization of race relations in the United States. You have um, a group of people that reflect the variety and the diversity 
of the community that they inhabit. Um, this is the real LA, right? This is what it looks like. Um, so as unlikely as it is in the science fiction canon to have a 15 year old black heroine, right? Uh, it's actually not unlikely at all if you think about the context and the time period in which this took place. Um, so given that, right? Um, in addition to all of that, we also have this additional discussion of, um, of the family and what makes a family and what makes a community. And this has to, for me, be connected to the eight years of the Reagan administration, right? And the sort of at least rhetorically return to family values. Um, and this, this insistence on a version of the family right, that was limited, that was very well-defined, and that did not allow for a lot of creative deviation. So, and, and Butler very much picks this up, and already we start out with a family that's pretty fluid, pretty flexible, um, and then, of course, throughout the novel, um, we see the family being evolving, right? Uh, I mean, for lack of a better term, she, she queers the family, right? She queers the family, and it becomes... Um, again, this very organic community, uh, the bonds of which depend on uh, people's ability to, to trust each other, uh, to care for each other, to rely on each other rather than blood connections. And then in addition to that, of course, the family values, um, we also have um, neoliberalism, the, the late stage capitalism and the third, the third phase of, of capitalist development so um, of course, the, the moments in the book that deal with that very explicitly have to do with, with uh, incipient globalization, right? With, with these companies coming in to buy bits and pieces of the United States and to turn these, these entire towns and, and cities into um, essentially free labor factories under like very, very rigid, restrictive and ultimately dehumanizing conditions. So she gives us a preview, right, of coming attractions, so to speak. Um, this, was, this was the neoliberalism that Reagan made popular, right, and exciting. And of course, now, many, many years later, we are all sort of reaping uh, what was sown at the time, right? Now we're, we're uh, the god of the free market, right, rules all of our decisions. And I think I, I saw a, a tweet a while back uh, in response to uh, the possibility that scientists are looking into potentially uh, dimming the sun and the heat that's coming from the sun. And this tweet was just, just wonderful. And it said, we are literally going to turn off the sun before we take on capitalism um, as the cause of climate change. So. <laughs> And that's it, right? Like that's the, um, this, is, this is the beginning of that. Uh, we are very much entrenched in it now and immersed in it and just trying to keep our heads above water, quite literally in certain areas of the world. And Butler gave us, gave us the, the very beginning of this narrative that now feels to some degree um, inevitable and inescapable. So let, let's now get into the novel. So can you please give us a, a spoiler-free condensed least we need to know about Parable of the Sower? Uh, yeah, so if um, I'd have to leave out some <laughs> really important <laughs> stuff that I wouldn't want to ruin for anybody. But ultimately, I know that um, often uh, people will characterize this novel as a dystopian novel, but I also like to think of it as a travel narrative. So I would call it um, the story of a kind of like ragtag group of people um, traveling to Northern California from Southern California in a climate changed ravaged landscape. Um, and I think that's the shortest, the uh, probably summary that I can give you. Um, and you can sort of imagine, right, what they're going to deal with during this, this, this um, journey. You can imagine that they're going to deal with uh, the usual uh, obstacles right associated with climate change that we now have unfortunately come to know so well um, wildfires right um, lack of water um, predatory behavior from um, people who might not necessarily be as uh, communally minded as this particular group of people that we eventually find out becomes extremely tight right and develops the sense of um, 
uh, interconnected um, reciprocity, right? That, that keeps them alive and that keeps them safe um, and that allows them to, to grow and trust and lean on each other in a way that, um, that really we could all learn from. So, so let's talk about just very quickly the power of, of science fiction or you know, even dystopian types of novels. Why do you think they are as effective as they are? And I know there's certainly sometimes a reluctance to place them you know, in, in, in sort of these celebrated critically you know, uh, sort of approved genres of, of literature. What do you think? Why, why do you think science fiction and dystopia work so well? Uh, yeah, so I think, yeah, I want to echo that, right? There, science fiction um, has had to work really hard to, to gain legitimacy. Um, and, you know, of course, all of that is sort of in the context of Octavia Butler um, needs to be re-examined. I mean, we have uh, an African-American woman um, whose mother was a maid, right, who suffered from dyslexia um, and who, you know, a California native from Pasadena um, who has now won the Hugo Award and the Nebula Award, right? So uh, even though like science fiction itself has had to like make a name for itself, people like Octavia Butler, right? There was no room for them in the science fiction that was looking for, for legitimacy. Um, but she made room for herself, right? And then she has become this sort of like force, this literary force. Um, so, and I think part of it is that that she's ultimately brilliant. I mean, this book is about our world. It's about our cultural moment. She has been called prophetic. And I think that dystopia has, like the dystopian literature has that kind of um, effect on people, right? Um, I mean, think about um, the TV show, the Netflix show, Black Mirror, and how the grand mass appeal that that has had and it's the same thing here. I mean, we're dealing with things that are not very far away in our future anymore, right? Like that's the, the sort of premise of dystopian literature, um, the near future rather than the distant future. So we're dealing with, with obstacles that we ourselves have been either trying to postpone or um, that some of us have been attempting to sort of like tackle head on. And they're all in the book, like climate change, right? The struggle of climate change, um, toxic masculinity, right, sexism, racism, um, the, the struggle over the sort of like de declining interest in religion in the United States, but at the same time, this sort of like um, evangelical like uprising, right? Um, so there, it takes all, it takes on all of that. And it asks us to deal with topics that are very much alive and present for us. Um, and it asks us to entertain the possibility that if unchecked, right, certain trends that we are viewing in our society um, could lead us to places that we both do not want to go to, but that we also are not prepared for dealing with. Um, so it, it's asking us, it's inviting us to do that. And it's doing so with a pretty reasonable degree of urgency, um, given the topics that it is dealing with. I remember as a young high school student reading 1984 in the year 1984 while sitting in a classroom. And although, yes, it did feel relevant to the world I was in, you know, the eighties was a weird time, but this one, I must admit, I mean, it, it, it does a rare thing of giving you a date and it was starts with 2024. And as I looked at 2024 through what that 2027, the novel goes through, it felt too real. I almost felt as though I could back it up three years and it would work or six years and it would still fit perfectly. And that, that, that certainly made it incredibly powerful. I'm curious, uh, before we get back to the novel, other dystopian novels you like, other ones you'd recommend to our readers? I always like to make a list of any, anything you say, I love this book, read this too. So sometimes this is a, a, uh, a listing show of rec other recommendations as well too. Any other dystopian science fiction novels you love? Well, yes. So that, that's also a hard question. Uh, plenty of them, right? But um, before I go to Atwood's Oryx and Crake, which um, I have really been wanting to revisit because I'm planning to teach it, uh, because it's also very good on picking up some contemporary topics like GMO foods, like Big Pharma, so that, that has been one of the, uh, the big books that I think everybody should read now. 
right, beyond, uh, beyond the, the issues that Butler is dealing with, Atwood is picking up some of these issues like climate change, but is adding on these um, more modern contemporary iterations of more isolated stuff, like I said, GMO foods, um, even eugenics to a great degree. And so that's, that's a big one that I would definitely recommend. But to go back to Butler, I think the second book, Parable of the Talents, might actually be a really good place to um, go from here. I suspect that readers will want to go there because they will want to find out what happens, right? Uh, where does this go? What happens to Lauren Olamina? What happens to this group of people? Do they all make it? Who makes it? Does the, the political turmoil subside? Uh, do things get better? Do they get worse? Spoiler alert, both of those things happen. <laughs> things both get better and worse. So uh, Parable of the Talents, I think, uh, would be my first and foremost recommendation, where she digs further into some issues that she explores on the surface in this book, and that grow more complicated and more interesting and even more contemporarily relevant. There is yet another uh, political campaign where um, uh, a very overtly religious and domineering candidate whose slogan uh, very suggestively is make America great becomes like a key, a key character. Um, and then the sort of like the group of people that, that surround him and that rally around him and that support him are very recognizable in our world. So I would definitely recommend that other, um, the sequel to Parable of the Sower, Parable of the Talents. So perhaps people who rely upon alternative facts, you're saying? Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, first I can say the sequel is, has already been um, ordered via uh, online and it should be arriving soon. I can't wait. She intended it for it to be a trilogy, right? So there's supposed to be a third that was unfinished or never finished. Is that right? Uh, yes. Parable of the Trickster. Uh, so the, the notes for it are in her archive. Uh, in Pasadena, so you can get a sense of where she was going with it. Uh, I don't know how much I can say about it before I start giving away um, details about the events that happen in Parable of the Talents, as well as, as well as Parable of the Trickster. But I guess maybe I will ask a question and allow you and the reader to start conjuring up potential narrative based on that question. In Parable of the Sower, the Earthseed Creed ultimately ends with this articulation of Earthsea's destiny as being located in the stars. So the big question then is, do they ever go there? Do they ever leave Earth? Where does Earthseed end up? So the next few books, as you might have gathered from that question, uh, happen in different settings. And Parable of the Trickster is the one that really takes it there and that explores what kind of obstacles now a community that is closely knit and that is invested in uh, reciprocity has to deal with um, when they're trying to colonize and terraform another space other than Earth. So very much sort of Star Trek Next, next Generation, right? Or um, Stephen Hawking argues the same thing in his very last book, uh, what brief answers to big questions. He argues that we as, as, as a species will have to relocate and only if there is a mutual benefit and mutual sort of understanding that we are doing this for all, will we ever achieve that? Um, well, I can't wait uh, to read the second version of this, uh, the second, the sequel to this. And um, then I'll pick through those notes and see what we can do with uh, the third one. Right. Uh, so, so you mentioned the, the character of Lauren and, and she was such a strong character, uh, riveting from moment one. Can you tell us about her as a, as a character? She, you know, she suffers. She has this condition of, of hyper empathy that I thought was fascinating. Yeah, what a stroke of genius, right? Already, she's an unlikely heroine. She's 15 years old. She's black, right? And she's growing up in LA in this walled-off community that's trying to survive in this uh, in these horrifying conditions um, post climate change, right? Um, so already we have like a fantastic context for this character to grow and to develop into someone who we are going to eventually love. Um, but also at the, same, at the same time, someone who is complex enough to occasionally make you question your love for her and, and to make you question her dedication to her goals. Um, so she's an unlikely heroine. 
But at the same time, of course, she's the most likely person to lead this group out of the past. I think that's part of the challenges of the novel, that generational um, divide, right? Lauren has to grow outside of the clout of her father, right? Um, I mean, there's so many, I don't know how, uh, if you felt like this uh, while reading the book, but there are so many okay boomer moments, right? That, that Lauren has with her father. Um, so she realizes that the world that the older generation is connected to and invested in is a world that is dying and that it cannot be salvaged. It has to be overcome. It has to be altered. They have to adapt to conditions that are here to stay. So it takes someone who is younger who is a visionary, who is capable of looking at her environment with um, a pair of new eyes, so to speak, with, with new glasses on rather than the glasses of the past. Um, instead of trying to recover and save, the book is asking for a revolution. And so it has to be someone who is that young, right? In order to both recognize that, but also to be able to work to bring that about. Um, and then of course the hyper empathy makes her all that uh, more like interesting and complicated. Um, the hyper empathy at the beginning of the book uh, from the older generation uh, is viewed as a kind of disability, as an infirmity. Her father uh, teaches Lauren that she has to overcome it. She has to rise above it. It's a weakness that she has to she has to, to master. So already we're in this, this problematic place where a potentially beneficial adaptation to a changing environment is being articulated and framed as a disability, as something that is likely to hold Lauren back. So she's taught to, to view it as a weakness and to treat it as such. And of course, when Lauren steps outside of the walls of her community, um, it's clear that her hyper-empathy is now no longer a disability. Um, and her journey in overcoming the disability and recognizing that this disability is actually enabling in the new world that she inhabits, right? It forces her to rely on other people. Because she feels the pain of the people that she hurts, she has to think twice before she hurts anybody, right? I mean, could you imagine like a more convenient and pragmatic model for, for, for justice, right? What if everybody was hyper empathetic? Like, would anybody do the things that many of the characters in this book do to each other, right? The kind of like um, really graphic violence after, often that um, is so apparent in the book. Um, so, I mean, she's, she's a brilliant character. She's complicated, she's lovable, but at the same time, unlikable at times, sometimes too pragmatic, right? She, she asks those interesting questions. Um, where do you draw the line, right? You do have to be careful when you're hyper empathetic because you have to protect yourself. But at the same time, you have to rely upon us. A, a hyper empath, a sharer in, in the words of, of Octavia Butler has to, has to form a community they can trust. They cannot be alone, right? So that's the sort of like the major premise of hyper empathy. She cannot be alone. She recognizes this, that she has to trust others. She has to rely on others. They have to constantly watch her back. You know, I, I think both of us as college teachers have heard other people outside the profession be incredibly dismissive of our students and their generation. And what really connected me with this book was this sense of, you know, I will always say my generation has failed to address the issues that need to be addressed, whether it's the environment, whether it's racism, whether it's, you know, economic disparity. And I have tremendous, tremendous optimistic hope in the generation coming up because of exactly what you see in this character. Yeah, exactly. Um, I agree with you. And I think that um, we have so much to learn from younger people. We have so much to learn um, from people like, like Lauren Olamina. Um, and you see her take her the place of her father in the book. Um, and of course, because of her hyper-empathy, hyper she is very much attuned to the, the, the network that she's a part of. Um, she's very much attuned to um, the necessary collaboration of the group that she's a part of in order to ensure survival. Um, so both the hyper empathy, right, necessarily leads her to this, but at the same time, 
um, she is watching the alternative fail on a daily basis, right? Uh, the other character that embodies this and exemplifies sort of the alternative view to this kind of um, uh, entwined reciprocity that Lauren um, exemplifies is her, her brother Keith, right? Um, another sort of really vivid example of, of toxic masculinity among other things. Um, but the insistence, right, of this sort of misinterpretation of Darwin's survival of the fittest, right? Um, Keith misreads Darwin and he, he thinks that he can go at it alone as long as he has a weapon, right? Um, he can go at it alone, he, he will survive. And what he doesn't understand is that, that you need the cooperation, you need the group, you need the community, you need the social um, reliance on your tribe. You need people to hold your hand, you need people to watch your back, you need people to support you. Um, and of course, you know, we, when the readers uh, finish the book, they'll know what happens to Keith, right? The, the book is unambiguous about what approach to problem solving um, works and what doesn't. And Lauren's approach to problem solving and her leadership, um, it works, right? It forms tightly knit communities. It protects those communities. It ensures that um, the people in those communities are not profiting off of each other's pain, off of each other's um, disadvantages, but are supporting each other through pain, through disadvantages in order to uh, sort of emerge, uh, victorious is a bad word because really this book is about survival, um, but ultimately with the prospect of building something new, um, something that will transcend the current conditions that will adapt to those conditions and and will overcome those conditions. I thought that the the novel was remarkably and beautifully and melodiously written. It it you know the the, the parts of the text that are the the earth seed, the book of the living, could almost be a religious you know Tao Te Ching type text. Fantastic. I, I'm curious, why do you think she crafted that? How did that work to enhance the story or even create this sense of what we need to be outside of the story as well too. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think every time I teach this book, uh, the one thing that my students take away from it and that they're thoroughly enamored with is Earthseed. Um, they become invested in Earthseed. Uh, they ask me the same question that uh, you just asked me. Um, why isn't there an Earthseed book? Um, why aren't we building Earthseed communities? <laughs> um, why aren't we reading Lauren Alamina's um, writing? And, um, and it, it is, it's such a good question. Um, and clearly, right, this Earthseed idea in the book at least comes from Lauren finding an inadequate existing framework to explain the changes that are happening around her. Her father is a Baptist minister um, and a dean at a university. He's an accomplished man, he's an intellectual, um, he's capable and he's invested in his uh, religion. Um, but his religion for Lauren um, has sort of encountered its limits. Um, it, it does not explain what is happening around her, uh, at least not to her satisfaction. And most importantly, um, it requires that Lauren and people like her submit, that they resign themselves to what is happening around them. And Lauren is not the type of character that submits. Um, she is a problem solver. She, um, she wants to do better. She believes that she can do better. She sees the inevitable. She sees that the world um, has changed irrevocably and that she sees the only thing that she can do once she has recognized this, this change is to adapt to it so she can survive and eventually thrive. And her father's religion does not provide her with any um, readily available avenues that are empowering. It asks for resignation. Um, she spends some time in the book discussing the book of Job. Um, and this is her favorite book in the Bible. Um, this is the one that she identifies with the most. She sees humanity at this juncture in time as occupying the position of Job. And she's dissatisfied with God telling Job to essentially just suck it up, 
because he's small, he's insignificant, he doesn't have access to the whole picture, and he needs to just submit, essentially. Um, and this is just inadequate for her. This is not enough. Um, she will not submit. So she comes up with Earthseed. And Earthseed, the, the big difference between Earthseed and her father's religion is that Earthseed is empowering rather than disempowering. It is enabling rather than disabling. Um, Earthseed's central premise is that change is relentless. It is inevitable. God is change. And there are ways that you can cope with this knowledge. You can either submit to it and hope for the best, right? While you are battered by wildfires and earthquakes and storms, um, or you can recognize that as part of a much larger picture, right? That you might not entirely have access to. So to some degree, she, she agrees with the argument that God makes in the book of Job. You can still recognize that you are part of a larger network and everything is interconnected. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. So recognizing that influence, no matter how small, and that the fact that that influence ripples across the system of interconnected beings, right? Be they vegetation, right? Or animals or people um, is empowering. This is ultimately empowering. You can make changes. You can work with the changes that are happening around you. Um, you can adapt to them or rather co-adapt as Darwin would put it, right? Uh, to go back to my earlier comment about Darwin, Lauren reads Darwin correctly. Right? She understands that it's all about co-adaptation. It's all about um, this sort of like self-aware process of, of natural selection. Um, you can choose right, to work with change as it happens. You recognize its power over you. Um, you recognize your sort of, to a great degree, insignificance, but at the same time, in groups, as part of a tribe, as part of a network, you have the power to work with a change, to shape that change to your advantage. How could that not be unappealing, right? I mean, that is beautiful. It's beautiful, it's based in scientific inquiry, um, and it's so, um, it's a call for responsibility. It's a call for um, making room uh, for yourself in a complex world, and rising up to the challenge of making the world into the world that you want to inhabit. I think that we probably should send this book out to most everyone, all 350 million Americans at this moment. Maybe it would uh, help. There's so many amazing, wonderfully written passages in the book. Can you share a few places in the text that uh, you thought were particularly moving or powerful? This is difficult, but um, there are a couple of passages that really exemplify what I was just discussing. Um, so maybe I'll pick one that adds this dimension of class inequality and how the madness and turmoil that is taking place around um, Lauren, as well as her community, um, asks us to expand our understanding of, of natural disasters, right? But also the place of religion. So on page 15, very early on in the book, we already view in chapter two, we already view Lauren sort of struggling with what she's been taught. Um, so there's a, a brief paragraph here about half a page that I can read for us um, and that maybe we can discuss together. There's a big early season storm blowing itself out in the Gulf of Mexico. It's bounced around the Gulf killing people from Florida to Texas and down into Mexico. There are over 700 known dead so far, one hurricane. How many people has it hurt? How many are going to starve later because of destroyed crops? That's nature. Is it God? Most of the dead are the street poor who have nowhere to go and who don't hear the warnings until it's too late for their feet to take them to safety. Where's safety for them anyway? Is it a sin against God to be poor? We're almost poor ourselves. There are fewer and fewer jobs among us. More of us being born, more kids growing up with nothing to look forward to. One way or another, we'll all be poor someday. The adults say things will get better, but they never have. How will God, my father's God, behave toward us when we're poor? 
So that's such a poignant passage, right? You can really see the very beginning of, of Earthseed here. And it has, it has to start with violence, right? Violence on multiple layers. Um, killing one's God is a very violent act. And I think that's what's happening here. And that's what happens in the early chapters of the book. In order for her new God to, to rise from the ashes, um, the old God has to be killed. And this is her father's God. This is the inadequate God. This is the God that asks Lauren to resign and to submit. Um, and a God that seems arbitrary, right? A God that punishes you for crimes you have not committed. So we're back then to the book of Job, right? Um, a God that seems to be playing with people's lives. Um, so you're supposed to submit to this arbitrary force um, that in a sense does not recognize your humanity, does not care about your individual plight. And um, not only are you supposed to submit to, to this God, right? But you're also supposed to worship him. And Lauren just won't have any of this. And what I love about this passage is, is that it's such a good example of critical thinking. There are so many questions, right? Critical inquiry starts with questions. And there are so many questions that Lauren at the age of 15 starts asking. Um, and she will, in a sense, develop answers to all of these questions throughout the book. This is on page 15. We've got, you know, 300 pages to go. Uh, so the answers are coming, but you have to ask the questions first before you provide answers. And the passage you just read follows immediately after her baptism, right? Which is almost like a drowning, you know, either uh, she emerges as something different, right? Or that's still that compliance that always her father's world, like she's resistant to it. It's, it makes no sense. The water is far too expensive that, you know, they're, they're putting themselves in danger to even be there to do this. Wow. Well, Flavia, you, you've covered so many things, and I, I'm curious. The goal of the podcast, Lit Matters, is always to choose and discuss books that matter, that are relevant to our world today, that you know help us improve and, and, and be who we need to be as humans and as, as a society. You, 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 you've answered this in so many ways, but can you, can you add to why this book matters, why we should all be reading this novel? So many reasons, so many reasons. Um, it's such an important book. And um, I think a couple of years ago, um, maybe a little bit longer actually, maybe, maybe about four or five years ago, The Atlantic had an article um, that was about Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. And uh, it was in response to a kind of like frenzied rereading of George Orwell's 1984. Um, everybody wanted to reread 1984. Everybody wanted to learn about um, Hannah Arendt's uh, theories of totalitarianism and authoritarian governments, um, given sort of like the political context, right? Uh, four years ago, following the 2016 election. And The Atlantic came out with this wonderful article that said, put down 1984 and pick up Parable of the Sower, right? Um, and of course, 1984 is a fantastic book and it's ever relevant. But uh, Parable of the Sower has so much more to offer in terms of the contemporary relevance, right? And um, I think I, I've said this many times at this point, but um, the call for personal responsibility, I think, is key um, in this book. Um, it is relentless in that. Um, it both gives us a model of empowerment. We can change things, right? Lauren Olamina could change things. She was just one girl, one 15-year-old girl. Um, and she managed to make very big changes. Um, so that's one part of it, inviting us to imagine a world where we are empowered, where we are not helpless, where the things that we do on an individual level, when we are organized, right? Um, not when we are just distinct individuals insisting on our own singular agency and our own sort of insular view of the world, but when we are organized, when we are connected, when we understand that connections are empowering, um, it invites us, right, to, to act based on this. But at the same time, it gives us, it does so by terrifying us a little bit, right? Um, it's, it's sort of, um, it's causing us to really contemplate the real world consequences of inaction. This is a world where people have done nothing to slow down the effects of climate change. And this is a world 
where people did not step up and take responsibility. And it is a very vividly unpleasant world. It is a world that none of us want to live in. Um, and I think that's why the book is so effective. It is very close to home, especially if you live in California, of course, and you're already dealing with a you know, 365 day year fire season. Um, and I think that because it's close to home, um, it's very difficult to ignore the urgency and the immediacy of the crises that we are facing today. And the picture, the horrid picture of what will happen if we continue to do nothing is right here in these very easy to digest 300 pages. Um, so I think that's why you should read it. It's a call for action. And it's about, it's about you. It's about your life. It's about my life. Uh, it's about our world and our place in it. Well, I certainly encourage all of our listeners to, to pick the book up and read those 300 plus pages because it, it is beautifully written. It is incredibly moving. It is incredibly poignant. Um, it's one of the best books I've read. And I've not read this book in, in a very long time. Uh, and I, I certainly appreciate you sharing this with us uh, today. And on, on a personal note, I can't wait to see you again in person on campus and return to some sense of normalcy. So Flavia, thank you so very much. Thank you for having me, Chris. This was so much fun. It's so exciting to discuss this book with anyone, but it's even more exciting to be able to like share that enthusiasm with a larger audience uh, that would benefit so much from the gift of Butler's Parable of the Sower. Thank you so very much. And thank you for listening to Lit Matters. We will be back in two weeks with another exciting book and guest. And if you haven't done so, please be sure to subscribe to the Lit Matters podcast uh, through Apple Music or Podbean and leave a review. Uh, that always helps provide titles of books you would like to see discussed in the future. And uh, in closing, I'll end off with one of my favorite dystopian writers, uh, Lois Lowry. She once said, each time a child opens a book, she pushes open the gate that separates her from elsewhere. It gives her choices. It gives her freedom. Those are magnificent, wonderfully unsafe things. So I will simply say, be safe in the real world and be unsafe in your choices of books. So Flavia, thank you so very much. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for listening to Lit Matters. All content is written by Chris Evans and the show is produced by Steve Baldwin. Music was provided by the band Soup. Find them at Apple Music and Spotify.